Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by my friend Joshua Cameron. Joshua and I start the conversation discussing Joshua's deployments to Kosovo, Kuwait, and Iraq, and how his views on American foreign policy developed following his enlistment and his understanding of the political machinations behind the Iraq war. Next, Joshua explains how he discovered his spiritual path after returning from the war, which led to his political activism, including working with the Bernie Sanders campaign. We then discuss Joshua's experience tripping on psychedelics at the Devil's Tower and how he came to explore his greatest idea of goodness. We next discuss the Jungian archetypes of the mature masculine, why Joshua and I resonate with the magician archetype, and why Joshua has found inspiration in the character of Gandalf. We next consider the difference in boy versus man psychology and that life is about experience. Joshua then explains the Qing method in its relation to the book of Chinese mysticism, the Tao Te Ching. From there, we discuss balancing political awareness with not being infected by the toxicity spewed by the media. We end the conversation on challenging dogma, daily rituals, and the importance of being king of your own domain. This outro is titled King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. Outro is available for this and all episodes available at entangledpodcast.substack.com. Music from the show available on the Spotify playlist, Entangled the Vibes. Please enjoy. So hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Entangled. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Mr. Joshua Cameron. Joshua, how are you today, sir? Oh, man, I'm doing great. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. I am uh, really excited to talk to you today about uh, the Qing Method and all of your history. Uh, I think uh, it's been a really interesting journey that you've been on. So to kick it off, would love if you would uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, your history. Uh, sure, man. Uh, you know, appreciate the opportunity, and you know, I'm uh, yeah, I currently live in Utah, born and raised here. Uh, you know, what really kind of helped me with reference points to be able to get to my Qing method, be able to actually help me heal. I actually, took a, a lot of uh, trauma, a lot of childhood abuse, uh, a lot of alcoholism in the family, and that's both you know, m- you know, the uh, my dad's side and my mom's side, and you know, being able to deal with that. Um, at first, I, I lived life as a victim. For, for a real long time. Oh, life happens to me. Oh, poor me. You know, you know what? You know, I'd also be successful if I didn't have X, Y, and Z happen to me. And it's so easy to fall into that. And what is so ironic is that living here in Utah, uh, even though I was raised very secular, you know, a big thing that uh, a lot of the LDS, you know, they talk about is this idea that their soul is up in heaven, like looking down saying, hey, that's who I'm going to be a part of. I'm going to be part of that family. I'm going to be born into that because they are going to be able to teach me the lessons that I need to learn and come to find out while nobody knows the truth of the capital T. Well, from my model of the world that I have adopted now, uh, I I choose to believe that because I can see no better way of having a more empowering psychology than to say, you know what? I had hard things happen to me. Why? Because I was ready for them and because they taught me what I needed to learn. Yeah. And it gets into the idea of like, you know, your dark night of the soul. And, you know, while you're going through those really challenging, terrible moments, that's when you grow. That's when you're forced to learn and to change and to, you know, explore those deeper realities of who you truly are. 
Oh, 100%. And then on top of that, you know, Carl Jung was known for this idea that the, the lower the hell, the higher the heaven. And almost as if, you know, as you're going into hell, you're being this rubber band stretched further and further and further. But the more you stretch a rubber band, let's say in this case, this rubber band is not going to snap. But the more that you stretch it, well, what happens once you release it? Well, the further and faster it goes. And so the, the deeper the hell can be, you know, one can maybe take solace in the idea that when you find your path, where you find that flow to, you know, whether you want to call it divinity or whether you want to call it God or, you know, whatever, uh, you'll find that you can rapidly and, you know, with more acceleration actually reach those higher levels where life actually happens for you instead of life happening to you. Totally. Yep. And I think uh, as you talk about the LDS idea of, you know, you pick kind of where you incarnate, that's something that really resonates with me as well, that like, you know, we, we have karmic debts that roll forward and we come here for an experience because there are both good and bad, or, you know, if you want to label them that, that your soul is meant to experience as part of your journey, as part of that evolution to a higher state of consciousness. So it's, uh, it's all about, I think, just reframing those challenges when you do face them. Oh, yeah. And those challenges can come in many forms. You know, for instance, when I was 19, I joined the army. Uh, and, you know, I was, if you know much about the archetypes, you know, Jungian archetypes, you know, I'm very much a magician. And, you know, I really like uh, Rory Kilmartin, which I don't know a lot of people who uh, have necessarily heard of him, but he goes into the survival archetypes and the survival archetypes are the immature versions. And so he names them animals because we become much more, you know, primitive you know, when, and when we fall on our uh, primitive archetypes. And so the sovereign would be the gorilla, the, you know, the warrior would be the wolf, the uh, magician would be the fox and the lover would be the sheep. And as a magician, I did not and do not still like to be told what to do. Like matter of fact, right, just how it is. I just immediately feel this resistance building up, right? I, I, it's much, you know, much nicer to be invited in, into you know, the agreement, invited into the awareness or into the idea. And yet I didn't really know what I was going to do. You know, I had so many people around me in my world saying, hey, Josh, what are you going to do? Hey, Josh, what are you going to do? Hey, Josh, what are you going to do when you grow up? What are you going to do when you grow up? What are you going to do when you grow up? And um, I had, my brother was in the army as a warrant officer. His wife at the time was in the army going to the Defensive Language Institute at Monterey, California. Uh, I took a brief uh, bit of time away from Utah to go live with them in Fort Ord uh, near Seaside, California. And, you know, I was there for about six months. Uh, I joined the army because, hey, you know, what, what am I going to do when I grow up, right? Well, here I am trying to put on my big boy britches and made life a lot harder for me because, you know, again, I had a hard time, you know, dealing with being told what to do. So, I mean, what better in a totalitarian environment, right? Um, but then, you know, two years later, it will September 11th happened, right? I got orders in March of 2001 saying, hey, guess what? You're going to Kosovo. And everyone's like, yes, Kosovo. The war's over. It's a humanitarian mission. This is going to be amazing. And then eight days before we deployed, September 11th happened. And yeah, man, that was, that was rough. And what's probably the hardest part of, uh, and maybe the most traumatic of any of my experiences in the, in the military, you know, even though I've dealt, I've, you know, I've dealt with people, you know, death dealt with, you know, missing limbs dealt with, you know, just you know, with uh, mangled limbs, uh, all sorts of gross physical, but leading up to that experience leading up to the eight days of before we actually deployed to Kosovo, since all of our equipment was being shipped overseas, we had everything prepared. We had nothing but time to sit on our hands. Well, the, the powers that be thought it'd be a great idea to turn on the radio and have that radio on CNN on repeat 
constantly and no way to escape it. And so effectively just pumped in my brain, well, Muslims attacked us. You better hate Muslims, but don't actually hate Muslims, but really you should hate Muslims. And so that was really weird for me because, you know, Kosovo is a Muslim nation, right? Mainly Albanians that live there. So it really threw me in an existential crisis of, well, am I supposed to hate all these people I've never met, right? These victims of war, these victims of genocide, of ethnic cleansing. I'm just supposed to hate them because somebody in a country like far away from them. And so again, this really started building the the groundwork for me to later on start manifesting much more into a spiritual path. Yeah. Was that challenging being in the military at that time where, you know, you're facing these kind of existential questions and uh, I imagine, you know, in a culture where you're very much in a dialectic of us versus them. And you're like, mm, that doesn't really feel right to me. Well, it's, it's incredibly challenging because you're not, you're, you're supposed to in the military, especially as a, a lower enlisted, you're much more expected to be much like a child, right? You're there to be seen and not heard. And, you know, if you have these ideas, well, shut up, Cameron. Nobody cares about those, Cameron. You know, you know, shut, you know, shut your mouth, you know, keep your opinions to yourself. And it's incredibly difficult because then it's really what led me to join the army in the first place is that I had all these ideas of, you know, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Hey, man, I want to do this. You know, I want to be a marine biologist. And like, you're going to be a marine biologist. They don't make any money. That's stupid. Why would you do that? Right? You should do what I think you should do. So then, again, it's just another reinforcement of, oh, the ideas that I have are stupid. I, you know, I must be some someone, you know, who's unworthy. So mm -hmm. I must have to keep my head down. And so then how do I balance that with keeping my head down, feeling stupid, being told I'm stupid, but then also understanding inside like, hey, hating a, an entire, like, you know, religion, right? Or a way of being or a way of looking at the world is ludicrous yeah so tell me about you know what what happened after um 9 11 like did you did you move on from kosovo to a war zone yes so kosovo was a war zone it wasn't an active one um but uh you know at the time you know effectively there were uh you know there were accords that were written saying that all of you know nato troops had to be housed in uh in kosovo as i understand and so we were in camp bond still kosovo i did spend some time in macedonia as well on that deployment and um then we came back but so i was there we deployed september of 2001 came back in April, but halfway through that deployment, right, the our rear detachment who stayed behind, well, they deployed to Uzbekistan because, hey, all hands on deck, and we were uh, stationed at uh, Fort Campbell, I mean, home of the you know Screaming Eagles, 101st. If you ever seen Band of Brothers, uh, that you know this is you know the Screaming Eagles. You know uh, it was Easy Company back then, but now you know the uh, phonetic alphabet is Echo. But uh, then by January. We were, you know, January of 03. So I came back uh, from Kosovo in April of 2002, where rear detachment, I think, came back in July of 2002. And by January, we were already uh, deploying again. And we deployed to Kuwait because, you know, even though war wasn't actually officially declared until I believe it was March of 2003, that we already knew that we were going to declare war. We already knew that, you know, that the writing was on the wall. Yeah. And so then did you go into Iraq? I did. In fact, we were, the, as far as I understand, we were the very first uh, combat sport hospital to actually jump forward into Iraq to support the war effort. And scary thing about that is the path that we took going through what is, you know, the common nomenclature was beggar's alley. I, I've never seen poverty like that in my life, man. Never, ever. Uh, I mean, we're driving through and it looks like Flintstone houses. There's there's no electricity. I don't know where they get their water. People barefoot on you know, on the you know asphalt 
that you would think would melt their feet from as hot as it is. And, you know, we're throwing MREs out the, out the windows, throwing, you know, throwing bottles and kind of, kind of funny story, but it made me feel bad is, you know, I threw this, I mean, cause we had liter and a half bottles of water. So these big old things, and I threw one out the window and I said, I'm watching the rear view mirror bouncing and bouncing. And there's this little kid going to catch it and poof, it hits him and he falls back on his butt. But then I see him like stand up, like holding it in there. It's like, Oh, thank you. But, um, yeah, we, we jumped forward into Nazaria, Iraq, which was uh, Talil Air Base, or known as LSA Adder. And that was strange because we found out a week later, after jumping forward, that the day prior, a maintenance company was actually captured by uh, the Iraqi army and uh, taken, uh, you know, POW. It's like, holy crap. So this wasn't even uh, a well-managed, you know, well-secured route. And we went forward because... Well, I mean, military is very political and our Fulbright colonel really was after his, his, you know, one-star general. And, you know, then we, hey, all right, this, uh, this whole war effort was based off of bupkis, right? A big lie, which is like, oh, well, that's pretty much every American war, which is incredibly unfortunate. Yeah. And when did you come to that um, uh, perspective that it was all based on a lie? Uh, so... It was slowly, like, as soon as war was declared, they said Operation Iraqi Liberation. And it was like, wait a minute, what? That's a little on the nose, don't you think? And then it was a week later, then it was Operation Iraqi Freedom. And so that was really strange. Um, and there was a lot of a lot of fear going on, depending on who, you know, what unit you're in. For instance, you know, here we are in a hospital and, you know, you'll see you know, less than, you know, half a kilometer away, you'll see other, other units set up from, you know, completely different, uh, um, completely different areas. And we're getting all these warnings that there's, you know, incoming chemical attacks. And so we're getting all dressed up in our MOP4 gear, right? Mission-oriented protective posture. So, you know, we're wearing all of our all of our charcoal gear, our, putting on our gas mask, and people are looking at us like we're morons. Like, what are you guys doing? And yeah, so that was really strange. So it's like, okay, so these guys don't even know what's going on. Uh, and then I think I, I want to say it was less than six months that it actually came out that weapons of mass destruction was complete BS. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, does that, do you think that's consistent with other um, uh, enlisted servicemen and women, like where there's a general feeling that, you know, we shouldn't have been there? Or do you think there's a, a bit of a split still? And, and do you still keep in touch with the folks that you're enlisted with? Oh man, such a great question. Uh, so I don't keep in touch with very many people that I enlisted with. Uh, from what I've seen, there's there's not a lot of room for for critique, and it's like, hey, we're America, we're supposed to be there, we're the world's police because you know somebody's got to do it, and good for us. And there's not really people being like, hey, well, you know what, the you know war in Vietnam was based on the Gulf of Tonkin, which was a lie. Okay, well that's strange, right? The the um, first war in Iraq was for oil. Second war in Iraq was also for oil, but then they said, well, it's not for oil, it's for oif. And, uh, uh, and then weapons of mass destruction, which didn't actually turn out. Uh, and then even now, man, I mean, look at, look at what's going on with, you know, and I don't want to necessarily get you in trouble, but with, uh, Ukraine, right. For 2016, it was like, you know, that orange man is bad because he likes Russia. And then, but he's so bad in existential crisis. And yet now we're potentially having a, a PP measuring contest with the two countries with, with 92% of the nuclear arms, like, come on guys. And so it's insane. 
uh, yeah, it is insane. And, and again, that's where it kind of goes to support that. I don't think that there's a lot of room for critique. It's just people just take their marching orders and they move on. And, you know, as sad as it is, it really, it, life really is not much different than that movie Team America by uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone. I don't know if you ever watched that. Oh, yeah, I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you're right. It's it's very accurate. No, and hey, don't worry about uh, getting me in trouble. This is uh, this is a you know place for free speech. And and one question I want to ask is you talk about some of the lies, and you know, this is not a topic you want to go down. Fully understand, but I'm I'm curious. Have your perspectives on 9/11 changed at all since being in the military? Oh, 100, man. Because you know, while I totally, uh, I totally didn't buy into that. I should hate all Muslims. I still bought into, well, hey, we were we were totally attacked. And yet every time that we start looking at these wars where we get pulled in to make the military industrial complex money, something that Eisenhower warned us about, right, straight up, like we need to worry about this, well, it's always some sort of attack. And then we find out that, you know, the CIA and FBI had warned President Bush and President Bush like, yeah, I can go hang out in Camp David for six months. Uh, and, you know, we found out that I want to say about a year before, and then it came up again, like a few days before 9-11 happened, the Pentagon, oh my gosh, they, you know, they lost track of like $20 trillion. And, you know, and all, well, I guess the paper trail is gone. No, we don't have to worry about that anymore. And, and so now we're seeing it again. And now that we saw it come up again, well, then what happens? Oh, war in Russia. We don't have time to worry about the Pentagon. The Pentagon's helping us out. They're our buddies. And so, yeah, it does, you know, I, I'm not here to say that, uh, that the collapsing of the towers were necessarily a staged event. I am here to say that it worries me that it could be so though. Yeah. And I think it's something that we should be allowed to ask questions about without fear of retribution. I mean, for me, just the simple fact that two planes crashed in New York and three towers went down, that should, that should be enough for us to be saying, Hey, something's not adding up quite right here, guys. Or to your point about the Pentagon, you know, how can we, how come there was never any pictures of a plane, right? Like it just a lot, a lot of question marks. But anyway, you know, moving on uh, after Iraq, like when uh, when did you return back home stateside, and you know, what did you do after uh, your military deployment? So you know, ironically, or maybe not ironically, you know. So again, we were you know the first combat support hospital to actually you know, support the war effort. And then I volunteered to spend an extra uh, three weeks to clean up all of our gear. So then whoever's going to come in after us will actually have, you know, clean gear, clean temper to build the hospital. And so I went to Qatar, uh, which a lot of people call Qatar, which I don't know. And that's another story, but it drives me, drives me crazy. Q-A-T-A-R is Qatar. But um, uh, so I left actually July 4th and landed July 5th. And so 4th of July, that was kind of cool. Hey, freedom, 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 freedom. And we're flying home. And so that, that was kind of neat. And, you know, it got back July 5th. And, you know, the interesting thing about that, though, was, you know, I, I, I met a girl and I'd fallen in love. And then we got our orders. Hey, we're going to, you know, Iraq. And, you know, she was certainly worried. I was worried. And while I was over there, I really focused on her and, and felt like I didn't have a, a lot of the, the trauma mess with me. Saw a lot of, a lot of things I couldn't unsee. But when I got back, it all started just kind of hitting me. And then I realized that I came back as a different person. And that kind of ruined my marriage. Uh, well, ruined what later became a marriage. And then uh, we probably shouldn't have been married. We kind of promised each other. But yeah, it, it messed with my head. I didn't really have 
the wherewithal to delve deep into, hey, what is it I'm experiencing? What is my feeling? And I didn't have a spiritual path at that time to be able to, to give to a higher power and just be like, hey, here, here's here's my grossness. Let me transform this into something into something better. Yeah. So did you grow up without religion? I did. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So how did you, did you, did you consciously go out looking for a spiritual path or did it find you? Oh, dude, it totally found me. 100%. <laughs> yeah. And how did that happen? Uh, well, probably could say it started off with, I got really suckered into the narrative of orange man bad, which, you know, again, I'm not here to say that he's good or bad. Uh, I am here to say that it's it's ironic that he's this existential threat, yet he's the first president in modern history that has not, you know, waged a, a new war. And so there, there's something to that. And but I, I was working in medical research at the time, and you know, w- with medical research, I'm sure you can imagine that you know, mostly women. And so what has the media been doing? Well, just like when I right before I was I was deploying to uh, uh, Kosovo. Well, the media stoking these flames of, oh my gosh, he's an existential crisis. He's going to grab you, right? Uh, and he's, he, you know, he's going to do this, he's going to do that. And so all these women immediately are just bemoaning, oh my God, you know, sexual predators just, you know, just got elected to the office of the presidency. And so, you know, that again, just started triggering me and it started, you know, really bringing up a lot of this trauma. And here I am a former soldier. Well, maybe I should do something about it. So I, I, I got a great idea. You know, I'll just write in on my white knight. You know, and I really threw myself into politics. I became a, a state delegate. You know, I really, uh, I was a big fan of Bernie Sanders um, because he seemed like he just wanted results for the most part. Now, nowadays it seems like he's really playing the game of Republicans are bad and Democrats are, are, are good. And that's sad to see, but still he seems to be more focused on results than other people. Um, but so I really threw myself into, into helping him. And I saw a lot of the, what seemed to be good that I could do, right? Uh, there was a phone bank, you know, for instance, where, you know, uh, a friend of mine had asked me to, you know, asked me to help out. He had about five or six people show up. I spent two days calling people and getting them excited. Now, I don't know if you can tell I can be kind of an excitable person. Uh, and I called, you know, for two days and then, uh, that next day, 25 people showed up to make phone calls. And so, I mean, we, we quintupled it. And then the national Bernie Sanders people showed up and they, you know, the, the media showed up and so like, okay, so there's something here. Uh, the, the problem that I had was I'd already decided what was good and what was bad. And anytime that we do that, we become dogmatic. And this is something that I couldn't see because I was in the forest and I was already there. And so I couldn't, you know, and so since I was there and I w- I had kind of disillusioned myself of, of rational thought and was, you know, fully into this dogmatic approach, um, I'd already decided that, you know, Trump is an existential crisis. Hillary is also an existential crisis and Bernie is the only way to go. And, uh, you know, and, it, you know, Jordan, it seems like, you know, you might be a little confused about that. So let me raise my octave and get a little bit higher and louder in order for it to make sense. And if you're still confused, well, then I'll just yell a little bit louder. Then obviously it'll, it'll, it'll make more sense. And um, that caused a lot of problems for me, but it still showed me, hey, I can do good when I don't have my head up my fourth point of contact. But when I do, I really get in my own way. And what ha- what that did eventually is that you can't walk around with your head up your butt too long, or else you're just gonna you're just gonna run into catastrophe after catastrophe. And eventually, it, re- it really just kind of ruined my life. And you know, and I I really attribute 
the the Tao Te Ching to helping me see the error of my ways of why exactly. And in fact, there's a a, a really you know nice little verse that's wrapped up if you want to hear it about uh, yeah. Um, so there's this idea in the Tao that you know when a man is born he's soft and supple, and when a plant is born it's soft and pliable. When a man dies, he's stiff and rigid. When a plant dies, it's dry, it's dry and brittle. Therefore, those who are stiff and inflexible are disciples of death. Doesn't mean you're bad, doesn't mean you're good, just means that you're inviting more entropy into your life where the system breaks down, right? When we die, well, we, you know, we decay. Well, that's what holds us together is no longer holding us together and we turn back into soil and turn back into the earth. And those who are soft and and flexible are disciples of life. Well, I was so rigid because I decided what was going to happen. I decided I need to mold the outer world to fit my inner world. And so I was a disciple of death. And that's why my life fell apart. Wow. It's interesting. It reminds me of the Rumi quote. That's like, you know, at first I was, at first I was clever. So I wanted to change the world. Then I became wise and I changed myself. Yep. And I'm curious, you talk about the Tao Te Ching. Um, a, would you talk a little bit about, you know, what that is for listeners who may not be familiar? And B, was that your first real foray into uh, exploring spiritual texts? Oh, no, not at, not at all. In fact, uh, so man, what a great question. So the Tao Te Ching is, is you know, known as the Book of the Way, right? It came out around 400 BC, you know, written by Lao Tzu. Uh, and uh, I really fell in love with the Tao Te Ching by following Alan Watts. And man, do I love some Alan Watts. Yeah. And, but, uh, when I was in the army, you know, so, you know, here I am being dehumanized, you know, I'm being yelled at, you know, I don't like being yelled at, don't like being told what to do. And the very first person who humanized me invited me to church. I was like, well, hot damn. Okay. All right. Let me go check this out. And then I found more brotherly camaraderie and, you know, familial love than I've ever experienced before in my life. It's like, wow, these guys have something. Have I been an idiot my whole my whole life? And like Christianity really is this beautiful thing. And then it eventually kind of played out to be a little bit more complicated than that because as loving as they were, I mean, the venom that would drip from their, you know, when they say the homosexuals and like everything, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, right? You know, because some dude likes the taste of another dude's pee pee, right? And that just, and that's just so strange, so strange. Um, and so I, but I probably read the Bible cover to cover, about five times and then read the new testament i don't know maybe like 50 times and so i've got the spirit of it living inside me though i don't really take the time to memorize you know you know many um you know many scriptures and but peter sage so once my life fell apart because of uh, you know the politics well then uh, as i'm trying to reassemble the pieces well then the pandemic happens it's like and i'm working at a pediatric hospital and just like, oh boy. And I, I was tuning into Jordan Peterson and Jordan Peterson uh, started secularizing Genesis. And immediately I was like, oh, look at the wisdom here. Like, oh my God. So I've been the idiot. That's just, just discounting this. Just like a little kid folding his arms, you know, refusing to eat his vegetables that he's never even tried. Uh, no, I don't like it. Uh, whereas Jordan Peterson's like, well, hey, take a look at it this way. Instead of taking it literally, Right. We've always been speaking metaphorically. We've always been speaking, you know, in in these stories and these axioms and these idioms and look at it that way. Look at it in a secular way. And um, I immediately saw the brilliance of it. And he started playing with this idea of create the greatest idea of goodness of which you can conceive and then be uh, make yourself worthy of it by becoming it. And I was like, well, that, hot damn, that actually that resonates somewhere deep in my soul. And so I started doing that and I created uh, Gandalf, 
You know, I've got this six minute, you know, video starting off with, uh, well, it's fun too, because here it is about the greatest idea of goodness, which I can conceive, which is Gandalf. And Gandalf is a literary representation of Jesus, right? That's uh, Tolkien actually created him to basically mirror what his idea of Jesus would be uh, in this world. And then I have that that sandwich between two, you know, two uh, physicists, Richard Feynman, you know, Richard Feynman quote, and then a Niels Bohr quote, you know, afterwards. And, you know, it's really about inviting people to, to, you know, look at things in a different way rather than, again, just uh, decide that, you know, that, that they know uh, what's what. And that then led me to uh, tuning into Sadhguru. And I don't know if you're familiar with him, you know, and so S-A-D-H-G-U-R-U. So this Indian mystic, and he just made so much sense. And he brought up this idea that life is about experience. And I listened to his audiobook Inner Engineering. And, you know, I, uh, you know, I hope this doesn't make people too uncomfortable. I'm not somebody who's afraid of psychedelics. And so he's, you know, I'm doing this inner engineering. I'm kind of hearing about how you can geometrically connect yourself to the cosmos. It's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to listen to this guy's advice. He said to go to Devil's Tower. It's a place that I'd really like to go to. He said to go there on a full moon, which, you know, there's one coming up. Uh, he said to, uh, that he's never felt more throat chakra there than he's, you know, that, uh, or never felt more chakra anywhere in the world than there. And, you know, I'm, I'm this guy. I don't really know much about, you know, chakras. You know, I haven't really delved too much into, you know, into, you know, huge, you know, spiritual, you know, namaste and, and, and whatnot. And, but I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to Devil's Tower and I'm going to trip balls. And so uh, I went there with some uh, gel tabs and some uh, psilocybin uh, uh, capsules. And sure enough, I trip more balls than I've ever tripped before in my life. I've never really meditated properly, but when I was there, I found a rock that invited me to sit on it. Like it was like, you should sit here. And I was like, no, I shouldn't. Yeah, yeah I should. And while I was there, I was looking around. And again, I'm playing with this greatest idea of goodness, which I can conceive. And there's these trees all around that have these rags tied to them. And these rags are effectively prayers. And they're prayers for people who have shown up being like, you know, probably, hey, I have a sick, you know, a sick parent. I have a sick uncle. I have a sick kid. You know, I've got something, some tragedy in my life. And I'm going to tie this rag to this tree. And as this rag flaps in the wind, well, it's carrying my prayer up to this mountain, this mountain of goodness that's then going to, you know, provide an answer to that prayer. And so I see myself surrounded by what could easily be seen as tragedy, but I, I actually decided to look at it as people coming there and assembling there to see their greatest idea of goodness, which was, you know, again, this mountain, uh, this mountain of healing. And as I sat there, I could feel my thoughts. And again, eyes closed. I, I just immediately started crying. I just started because uh, it just felt so amazing. And so I probably looked crazy because I had this Batman scarf on. I had my awesome hat and uh, and I'm sitting there crying, you know. And so uh, um, but I felt as my thoughts were crescendoing that the wind, I could feel the wind pick up. And as my thoughts were, were mellowing out, I could feel the wind actually mellow out as well. And that's just how in tune I was to my environment. So I'd say that's probably the deepest religious experience, if you want to call it that, that I've ever felt. I'm curious, when was uh, when would this have been? This would have been, I think, April of 2001. Of two, you mean 2021? Or sorry, 2021. Yeah, name. that's yeah. crazy. And the reason I ask is I uh, I was with at that Devil's Tower with my dad. I think May of 2021. So it's kind of wild synchronicity. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So we we are uh, we almost crossed paths. Yeah. And yeah, man, that's phenomenal. And and so eventually, what that did is it it uh, it led me to Peter Sage. 
and Peter Sage became my mentor. And Peter Sage is this, you know, elite, you know, uh, a serial entrepreneur. He's trained with Tom Campbell, who was one of the founding scientists of the Monroe Institute, mm -hmm. which, you know, bleeding edge of consciousness, even taught the CIA. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not that I'm a huge fan of the CIA, but, you know, the, when it comes to flow and Taoism, right, when you look at the Tao, the Tao Te Ching, you know, flow doesn't really care, doesn't care about morality because morality only lives in the mind of a human. And so whoever's there to use flow is there to use flow. And so I was like, okay, so this guy's got actual concrete evidence of this stuff. Well, I want to learn from this dude. And so I learned about, you know, neuroscience and how the brain doesn't understand the difference between uh, imagination and reality, which then when I actually started getting to my healing modalities actually served me so immensely because I grew up, you know, uh, all my life reading uh, fantasy novels and fantasy books that helped me escape the horrors of, you know, child abuse and, you know, even, you know, the horrors of war. And, you know, like this fantasy novel here, which is uh, from uh, R.A. Uh, Salvatore. And, uh, you know, he's famous for writing the Dritz de Orden books, but that's the uh, Cleric Quintet. And, uh, yeah, so I really identify with uh, the main, you know, the main protagonist in that book. Hmm. That's cool. And I highly recommend listeners check out the Monroe Institute. It's been really valuable for my own personal journey. I uh, had the benefit of having the executive director, Alan Evans, on the podcast last year. And so that, that was really great as well. And, um, you know, as you talk about fantasy, I'm curious to know, what do you think it is that attracts you to fantasy? Mm. Um, so let's go back to this idea that we're souls in heaven looking down saying, hey, you know, this is the life I want to learn. Well, I are the learn from. Well, I I chose I choose now to decide that I needed these horrors in my life in order to tune into fantasy to to reveal to myself that magic is real. Yeah, and you know, you were talking about to kick things off about archetypes and how, you know, you're the magician archetype. So could you talk a little bit about more about, you know, what is the concept of an archetype and why do you think that's the one that resonated with you most specifically? You know, I don't teach this stuff, so I am not necessarily the end-all be-all. But from what I've learned, uh, right, the archetypes are energies that we all hold within us, right? There's four main ones. You know, again, there's the sovereign, the warrior, the magician, and the lover. And so the magician is the one that, you know, you can imagine you're laying in bed, the alarm goes off, and he starts whispering in your ear about, you know, why you can hit the snooze button, why it's not so important that you make that first meeting, why, you know, and so it just creates and crafts this magical picture of why you don't need Need to show up and that's more the immature magician but the mature magician is you know maybe what you even tapped into to start this podcast of where it could go of what you could do of the influence you could have who you could have on and again creating this brilliant idea of of what you could actually become and so that's that's the mature magician and you know there's the lover and i think a lot of men will will identify with this you know, especially men who have uh, struggling relationships. So the, the lover, uh, when, you know, mature lover is somebody who can be there to, to hold space for, you know, for his partner uh, and, you know, or, or their partner. And with me, though, you know, an immature lover, what, what I found myself into uh, is that uh, I became the boy. Instead of the man, I became the boy, which then meant that the, you know, that my partner had to become the warrior. She had to become the mom. She had to be the one telling me what to do and yelling at me. And then that just causes so much, uh, so much strife because one, she doesn't want to be a warrior, right? She wants to be able to be held. She wants her space to be able to be held. And, uh, and, but instead I retreated and I made her actually treat me 
you know, like the boy. And whereas, again, the mature lover is somebody who can actually be there for their partner and not there to be like, oh, you have a problem, let me fix it. But, oh, you have a problem? Oh, well, let me actually hear you out and let you know that I'm being present and I'm there with you. Yeah. Wow. It's really, really wild to hear how many uh, similarities you've had in your journey with mine. And I think, you know, I've never heard those four main archetypes broken down like that. But I have to say, I mean, the magician is clearly what resonates with me the most. You know, like growing up, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, like those were everything for me. Um, you know, the uh, the King Killer Chronicles, um, Song of Ice and Fire, right? All these things. And like there was, there was always... But, but at the same time, right, like while I loved that side of fiction, I also was very deeply ingrained in the atheistic, materialistic paradigm, you know, if you can't touch it, you know, there's no such thing as magic and fairies and extraterrestrials and all this stuff, right? So I think there was part of me that always yearned to, to have something more mystical, but, but didn't believe in it. And then my awakening happened pretty abruptly when uh, I was actually introduced to uh, not only the corruption within the military industrial complex, but also how that related to the extraterrestrial phenomenon and the cover up and that we aren't alone and that consciousness is very profound and magic is real and the ether is real. Right. And so, and so shortly after that, I also had a very profound psychedelics experience that kind of bursted me through the veil. And, you know, I've been running full speed ever since. And long story short, the point is like the, I think part of the reason why I was excited to start this podcast and to really fully explore this is because I felt like, you know, I, I always was longing for that sense of the mystical, this sense of there's more to this cosmos than us being here randomly for no reason to, you know, run in a hamster wheel and make as much money and eat, sleep, fucking die. Right. And so <laughs> when I had that validation that all of that is real, not in some fictional reality on a TV screen, but here in our present 3D reality and then beyond, how could I not be excited, right? How could I not run full steam at that? It's just, it's just so exciting and fun and has just brought so much bliss to my life. And, and so again, that comes back to the idea of you're into this rubber band being stretched and being stretched. And then I, I do the exact same thing. You know, when, when I first met uh, Ed Stracher, right, the man who later became my spiritual master and helped me and, and taught me how to heal. Well, first I had to learn how to heal myself. Because I, I, I got no business trying to take somebody else through a process that I can't take myself through, right? Like I, you know, I, I liken it to, say, a mountain guide or like a forest guide. If I get lost on the path, I, I got no business taking somebody else on that path. Yeah. And uh, so when I first started going through this, I, you know, well, rather, let me take a step back. When I first met Ed, uh, it was actually through Peter Sage. And so, again, my mentor. And my mentor is somebody where he's somebody at where I want to be. And he's saying, Hey, you know, come, come check this guy out, you know, cause Ed's been teaching people how to speed read since the nineties. And in fact, he played some old, uh, some older infomercials that he had. And I remember watching him as a kid. So what's strange is that he's been in my life, even though I didn't realize he was in my life. And it's funny the way that life works that way. And so, you know, Ed's going on about, you know, you know, speed reading. And then, uh, then he starts going on things that I found incredibly bizarre. You know, talking about you know things of the spiritual nature, and starts talking about you know different you know different things of you know demons and witchcraft and curses. Like, bro, what is going on here? Like, wh what what just happened? Like, <laughs> we were just talking about speed reading, and now he's talking about this. Like, what? Like, what? And I'm staring at my mentor because he's on this webinar, and he's got a little smirk on his face, like he's heard it all before. And it's like, uh, 
okay, well, and then, you know, as I'm listening to this, uh, I'm just lost in my head. Like, man, this is bizarre AF. And I, and so I was like, you know, I got to use the bathroom. I, I turn off my camera and as I'm using the bathroom, I hear this clunk, clunk. I'm like, well, that's weird. And I wonder what the hell that was. And so, you know, wash up, come out and I see my Gandalf statue had fallen off my bookshelf and landed and broke off his left foot or the same foot, the same ankle that I've historically had a, you know, a, a bit, lot of uh, trouble with. And Gandalf, again, is the highest ideal of goodness, which I can conceive. And here's the guy who's going to teach me that magic is real. And what better way than to break my highest ideal of goodness as if to say that, hey, I can reassemble myself in whatever image I want to become. And uh, so then I was playing with that. And he was talking about maybe following up with him and gave us the instructions of if we did want to have a, a one-on-one chat with him, how to do that. And I was thinking, hey, should I should I follow up with this guy? And in my right ear, I heard Sadhguru whisper. I don't know how I heard him whisper, but I audibly heard him whisper, life is about experience. And again, he would follow up with, isn't it? But he didn't because it was up to me to say, isn't it? To reaffirm what I already knew. He just whispered my ear to, to trigger it. And once I started learning from him, same thing, man. Oh my God, this is real? this is real. And I just threw myself into it. Yeah. You know, and I, I can't help but think about the Freemasonic concept of, you know, the left-hand path and the right-hand path. And I'm curious if, you know, maybe there is some relationship to your, your left foot, you know, being broken and, and Gandalf as well, right? To say, you need to follow the right-hand path. You need to be here to heal people, right? You're here for, for good and for a higher purpose. And I don't know. Do, do you think there's any credibility to that? I don't know, man. You just said that, and it's four forty-four right now. And I know. Then I, I definitely take stock when I, when I see the angel numbers kind of pop up, you know, repeatedly because they happen a lot. And so I hadn't actually thought about that at all. In fact, I love that you just proposed that question um, because I can see that. I, I yeah, there's, I can, I can feel some truth in that. I'm gonna have to reflect on that a little bit more. But uh, yeah, man, thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so what do you think it was about Gandalf in particular that, you know, that was, um, that was a, a character that resonated with you so intimately? Mm. Um, he was the one who saw what nobody else could. And it wasn't that he needs to go and fight some Balrog because in fact, he didn't want to go, you know, into Moria in the first place. Uh, it wasn't that he wanted to go confront the Witch King and have his staff explode because, right? Scares the shit out of him. It was the fact that, you know, and what was it that uh, Saruman, you know, uh, you know, bemoaned him for, oh, you spend too much time smoking that halfling, you know, that, 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 you know, halfling's leaf, you know, hanging out with these, these worthless people, but come to find out these worthless people. Yeah. They may not be building castles. They may not be building grand roads. They might, may not be waging grand wars, but you know what they have? They have a sense of community unlike any other. They got a sense of love that makes them near impervious to the tendrils of evil as they try and wrap around. In fact, Sam, Sam was near immune to the power of the ring. And without Sam, Frodo never would have made it. And so Gandalf found the best superpower in the world because he was willing to live there. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this is before I, you know, when I, I tapped into that, this is before I even realized that life is about experience you know, that I got from Sadhguru. And so when I heard that from Sadhguru, again, it just resonated with me because again, that love as a boy, I didn't have that love. You know, as a boy, I was beat up by those who were supposed to take care of me. You know, those who were supposed to take care of me were, you know, were drunken all all the time. When you deal with somebody who is a, a, 
you know, outrageous drunk. Well, they only live in extremes. And that's something that a boy can't really handle very well. And so I had to retreat into my inner world. And so seeing that love, I mean, that was what I was missing my whole life. And so that was my highest ideal because it also is, is, it's what saved the world. Wow. Yeah, that's cool. And it, it, you know, it reminds me for sure of one of my favorite elements of Harry Potter, right? Where it's like, um, you know, I, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something to the extent of, you know, we have something Voldemort doesn't have, right? Something worth fighting for. And, and you know, it, and it can't, I can't help but bring it back to modern day. And, and you know, my awakening also occurred during, uh, during COVID. And I think a lot of people's did. And, and I think not only did it awaken folks to the spiritual reality that, that transcends this dimension, but also to the very real forces of darkness that are interacting with us in this, in this manifest reality and and the cabal. And it it seems to me like we are coming to a head of some, something, something great. And, and as, as the existing powers lose their control, they're almost behaving more and more like, like animals backed in a corner and it's, it's forcing folks to almost pick sides. So I, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's just really, wild to me to see how much art imitates life imitates art right mm. well and then so if you think of the Kabbalion, right the Kabbalion, you know as, as above so below as below so above and you know that's really yeah you know part of my healing method is to help people understand too that you know that as above the soul you know uh, you know as below the body you know as below the body as above the soul and so if the body is not being nourished and the body is consuming, you know, you know, things that are terrible for it, whether it be, you know, glyphosate on the food, you know, whether it just be, you know, trans fats that are, you know, annihilating the microbiome, um, you know, the preservatives, you know, you know, et, et cetera, um, you know, then it's going to start creating energy blocks and those energy blocks are then going to start affecting, uh, affecting the soul. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the soul itself also, if uh, we don't have some way to, to give back more than just what we can experience on a physical level, whether that's through prayer, whether that's through meditation and be able to close our eyes, shut out the world and make our inner world more real than the outer world. Well, then we're constantly be caught in the paradigm and, you know, very easily be caught in this world of, well, life happens to me. And if life happens to me, well, there's this idea that be careful of, of, you know, how you speak to yourself because your body can't help but listen. And so if life happens to me and I'm a victim, well, it's not just my body that's going to listen, but it's also my mind and my mind and my body are intrinsically, you know, uh, connected. And then I'm going to start creating those neural pathways. Cause again, the brain doesn't know the difference between, you know, imagination and reality. Yeah. So I'm going to create those victimhood neural pathways. I'm going to create those victimhood, you know, neurotransmitters and neuropeptides in order for my, you know, cellular structure inside my body to be like, oh, well, this is who we are as a victim. And if I ever try to change that, well, then the, if I start changing the neurotransmitters by trying to have a positive mood, well, then the alarm goes off. Hey, there's danger, danger. There's something going on here. This is not familiar. What are you doing? Come come back to, to familiar territory. That's really interesting. So talk to me a little bit more about uh, your present day healing work and what do you do uh, with clients? And so, you know, clients, you know, I've worked with clients uh, around the world uh, and, you know, I do it all uh, remotely, you know, through Zoom because, you know, energy doesn't need locality. And the, you know, the method that I created and because I'm such a nerd for the uh, Tao Te Ching, you know, I, 
it really, as I was coming up with, you know, hey, what what is my my niche? Uh, the Qing method just really kind of came to me. And first, you know, C, we'll concentrate. Most people only know what they don't want. You know, I just want to be happy means I'm unhappy and I just don't want to be unhappy, right? Well, okay, what specifically do you want, right? And if you think of that, say a NASCAR driver, you know, NASCAR driver, if he doesn't want to crash in the wall, guess where he doesn't look? He don't look at the wall because he looks at the wall, right? We magnify our focus and we actually travel in the direction of our focus. It's just human nature. So he, he looks at exactly where he wants to go, but most people don't know where they want to go. They just, don't, they know what, where they don't want to go. And so if you know where you don't want to go, well, the brain doesn't know negation and the brain doesn't know negation and you only know where you don't want to go. Then the brain's like, oh, this is where you want to go. And so that's, that's what we manifest in our lives. So one, let's get clarity on where it is that you actually want to go, right? What is it that you actually want? Do you want to, you know, why do you want to be healthy? Is it just because, you know, being in pain sucks, right? Is it just because your disease sucks? Is it because, you know, you're being held back? Well, what are you being held back from? What, what, what is that great hoorah that you want to get to once you're actually healed? Um, and again, uh, you know, as above, so below, as below, so above, that H is healthy, healthy, you know, body, mind, and soul. And, you know, again, whether that's prayer, I, I don't care like who your higher power is. I, I really don't. As long as it's adding benefit to yourself and those around you, that's, that's really the only requisite that I had asked people to have. Uh, and, um, you know, healthy body. Well, what sort of food do you eat? Right. What, uh, is, is it, is it constantly fast food? Right. You know, where do you live? Do you do you live at, you know, a home home cooked meal doesn't have to be the best home cooked meal, but I can guarantee no matter how much butter you put in, in your food, chances are that meal is going to be far better for you and far more nutritious than if you go to McDonald's It's because it's not going to have all the preservatives. It's you know, it's not going to have all all the, you know, all the waste. Um, especially if you get down to, you know, hot dogs and, you know, grinding up tumors and stuff that, you know, they might be eating. Um, and then, you know, the, uh, the mind, healthy mind. Well, you know, what are you doing to, you know, increase your mind, right? Are you reading, you know, are, you know, cause we are programmable by design, right? Again, just coming back to me going to Kosovo, right? When you got attacked by a Muslim, everyone hate Muslims. And we're like, you know what? That's a good idea. Let's all hate Muslims. And then we saw a lot of people getting attacked, you know, a lot of Muslims that had nothing to do with it, right? Thousands of miles away, but since they were Muslim, right? So we're programmable by design. We do not get to choose that at all. What we do get to choose is how we're programmed. So how are we programming ourselves? And, you know, then the I is I am, right? I am is the language of the soul. And, you know, we see this in parables and say Moses. And again, I invite people not to look at, Mo, you know, the story of Moses literally, but the idea that when somebody steps in their full I amness, that they can shake an entire nation. And, you know, I am is the language of the soul, but so many people come as I am diabetic. I am arthritic. I am my limiting beliefs. And so they, instead of showing up as I am, they show up as their me. And this is me, right? My body and my avatar, you know, and like you mentioned about, you know, building up karmic debt. Well, because we, you know, we have this eternal soul that is playing a game, much like a, a massive multi, you know, you know, multi online, you know, a game like say World of Warcraft or something, which, you know, I also have plenty of years of my life that, you know, that I sacrifice to the, the wow gods. Um, not anymore though, thankfully. And the N is uh, non-negotiables. Right. What sort of where, where are our dogmatic, you know, ideas where we decide that the world already is this way and we don't receive the world and allow ourselves to change because that will cause us to get in our way. 
right? Whenever we're dogmatic and we, we decide that whatever evidence comes to us and we just throw it out, well, it starts to create energy blocks. And the problem with energy blocks is all energy needs to flow. All energy needs to flow, just like water. If water quits flowing, well, guess what? It stagnates. If it stagnates, what's attracted to stagnating water? Parasites, mosquitoes. What do parasites and mosquitoes do? Well, they, they drain our lifeblood, right? They, they bring disease. Well, the energy world, again, nobody knows the truth of the capital T, but the energy world is no different. And so, you know, what happens when our, our energy stagnates? Well, then we invite the mosquitoes and parasites of the energy world to feed off of our soul. And, they're, and if they're draining our soul, well, guess what? Since our me is the subset of our I am, which is the superset, well, if our I am is being drained with our me, we'll start to break down as a natural consequence. And then the G is goodness. Right. Again, it doesn't matter what, you know, what higher power you believe in, as long as you believe in some form of goodness, adding back to growth and connection, right? Growth and connection. How do I connect to my community? Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's fine to think globally, but act locally and expand. And so how do I help? Right. For me, I, I first started figuring out how I could help by helping myself. And I was going to the, the uh, you know, Mormon church, ironically, right? I had a vision pumped in my head of a podium. And that podium, by seeing that, I knew that I was supposed to be speaking from that podium and sharing my thoughts, even though I'm not a Mormon, even though I don't believe in their dogma, even though I was very open, though not in a rude way, that I didn't believe in their dogma. You know, um, and I, I knew that I was supposed to speak there, but like, man, I was atheist, maybe, you know, agnostic at best. So how the hell am I supposed to go up there and just, you know, hey, I kind of want to speak to you guys. Like, is it okay if I, if I just come up here? Well, come to find out because, uh, you know, I showed some, you know, inquisitiveness and started asking people who were brought up in the church. Well, they said, well, hey, you do know that every Sunday or every first Sunday of the month, they have what's called fast and testimonial meeting. And anyone who shows up, anyone who shows up can go and share their thoughts. Anyone you say, well, look at that. So whatever pumped that, you know, that vision to my head, you know, had knowledge of this that I didn't. And so I uncovered it and was like, oh, well, look at that. And so now here I am playing with my highest ideal of goodness and even though I was at the church and they would say things that I found quite silly, you know, because, you know, one person, then the next person, the next person, all basically same, some form of the same thing, which is brothers and sisters, I know in my heart that the Book of Mormon is the one true word of God. And I know in my heart that Joseph Smith is the one true prophet of God. And I know that this is true. And I say it from as my personal testimonial. And then the next person happens to have the same personal testimonial. And so does the next person. But instead of judging them, being like, oh, look how silly they are, like I would have. I said, well, you know what? This is probably their highest ideal of goodness, which they can conceive. Well, what's my highest ideal of goodness? And lo and behold, when I created my highest ideal of goodness, it was Gandalf, a wizard, right? Who heals, right? Who has magic. Mm -hmm. And then come to find out, I start, you know, I wasn't long after that. I was introduced to Peter Sage, who taught me about consciousness. Uh, you know, Max Planck, a contemporary of Einstein, talks about how consciousness is primary, right? Everything is consciousness. Okay. So wait, wait, magic is real. Okay. That's strange. And then I met the guy who could actually teach me how to heal to show me like, no, dude, let's show you how real magic really is. Mm -hmm. And so when we create our highest ideal of goodness, we actually do have the ability to become it because we start concentrating on what we want and not what we don't want. Uh, that's beautiful. I heard a great uh, metaphor from um, uh, a scholar of uh, Mayan wisdom that you know, magic is technology harnessing energy, right? And, you know, you think about that, like if you showed someone an iPhone several hundred years ago, they'd consider it magic or a television, right? And so it's just all these, and that's not to take anything away from these forms of, of energy that we don't yet understand, right? Far from it, but it's more just to say that 
it's real and it's something that we should be exploring and not shunning as witchcraft and and figuring out you know how can we incorporate this to achieve the highest and best goodness of the individual human and of humanity as a whole mm, yeah, i love that i mean i imagine that you flew a harrier jet to somewhere in the middle of the uh of the amazon you know, maybe some, some pygmy tribe that's, you know, never seen, you know, the outer world. Like, what are they going to think? You know, you talked about how you were pretty involved in politics back in 2016. And, and it's interesting. I mean, again, similar, similar kind of trajectory as me. I, I was very much of that dialectic orange man bad. You know, he's, he's the <laughs> downfall of American democracy. And then, uh, you know, come to realize that while, while I still certainly have, uh, have a lot of misgivings about, about Trump, I, I still, uh, I, I've come to recognize that, the rot in the system is far deeper than any one individual, right? And so I'm, I'm curious uh, to get your thoughts on, you know, do you still consider yourself politically active? And, you know, how do you think about, uh, you know, the, the future for our governmental structure going forward? Oh, man, that's such a great question. Holy cow. Um, politically active? No. No, not at all. Uh, politically aware? Yeah, a little bit. I dabble a bit. The, the problem with politics and, and like the news is that the news is fear porn. And, you know, again, we're programmable by design. So if we're watching fear porn, well, guess what we're getting programmed by? And, you know, so then I have to constantly try and clean my energy. Then it gets into my mind. You know, and again, you know, as, as, as above, so below, as below, so above. So if I'm poisoning my mind, well, I'm going to start poisoning my body. And I'm going to start poisoning my soul. And uh, so I, I really watch it. But what, um, what I do tune into, though, I'm a huge fan of Jimmy Dore. I don't know if you ever heard of Jimmy Dore. Yeah, I love Jimmy Dore so much. Uh, in fact, uh, when he came to Salt Lake, you know, I I made sure that I I was the first person in the front row. And I was laughing my ass off as loud as I could because he mentioned during the pandemic how hard it was for him to not be able to go and see crowds and how much he enjoyed actually hearing people laugh. I was like, this is gonna be my gift to you, Jimmy Dore. And boy, I can I can laugh you know really freaking loud too. I got a pair of lungs. Um, I do tune into Breaking Points now and then. You know, I I really like Sagar. You know, Sagar and Jetty, I, I love the way that his mind works. Crystal Ball, I like her, though not as much. I did I did watch the uh, the interview they had with RFK, mm -hmm. which I could see RFK. If anyone if anyone were to get me even remotely political active, it would be RFK, mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I definitely find myself struggling with exactly what you're talking about, right? Where I want to be politically aware. I want to be politically active. Um Especially as I mentioned earlier, I, I, and maybe it's just, you know, my perspective has changed because I've been awakened to what's really going on. But it really does seem to me that we're nearing the end game, right? You look at, you know, the World Economic Forum, they accelerated their 2030 goals because, you know, for unforeseen circumstances, I think is how they framed it. I think in reality, it's because people are waking up much faster than they ever expected. But anyway, nonetheless, it's it's something I certainly struggle with because it's toxic, right? It's poisonous. And it's like, I want to know what's going on and I want to do what I can to help, but also I need to turn it the fuck off and just be at peace. Right. So it's, it's difficult waters for me to navigate. And I wish I, I wish I had a better solution at this point in time. Well, and so for me, you know, coming back to Jimmy, you know, Jimmy's evolved a lot. And so before he was just so angry, I mean, just so angry and that, that really fed, you know, who I was as a person, I was very angry at the system and, you know, very much against the system. And, but now that he's got, you know, Kurt Metzger on there and doing a lot of commentary, I mean, it's just so many jokes. 
and so I hear something horrible, and then Kurt just makes this, <laughs> makes this funny joke, and I and I laugh. I was like, okay, I'm getting permission to laugh at this horrible stuff, so I don't need to buy into the narrative that I need to be afraid. And so um, it's something I'm quite thankful for that I can still, you know, and I don't watch a ton of it. You know, I might watch, you know, maybe a, a video a day, if that. Uh, and but I do like if I'm going to get my news, so to so to speak, it's most likely to be him because he's got a, a, a good beat on my pulse as well. Mm-hmm. And if I'm going to have some sense of, you know, say moral outrage, though, I try not to moralize much. Mm-hmm. I feel like he's got a good reason for like, Hey, if you're going to be outraged about something, this is probably a good reason to be outraged rather than be like, well, didn't you know that Trump was mean to uh, Jim Acosta? Oh my gosh, dear E. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, and so living in Salt Lake, is that, is that right? Is that the part of the Utah you're in? Do you find that, um, you know, generally open to the, the realm of the spiritual and the metaphysical, or is it more, uh, is it, are folks in Salt Lake maybe a little bit more, uh, um, I don't want to necessarily say constrained, but are they just more, more um, centered in a Mormon culture and maybe not necessarily as open to some of the things you're talking about here? Mm, that's another great question. So, uh, yeah, I'd say about, you know, half of Utah is LDS. But of those half that are LDS, I would say a minimum of half really struggle with their faith. Because here's the problem. It's just like I said before, you'll see the same person over and over and over again, stand up and say, you know, hey, brothers and sisters, I know this, I know that. The problem is, is as soon as they step down, right? So here's somebody, you know, saying, hey, Jordan, don't you know that I know in my heart that I've got the right book, I've got the right prophet, I've got the right wisdom, and the second they sit down, the big old you know scowl goes back on their face. It's like that guy's full of shit. And you know, so you know, pandemic is happening, and I'm trying to discover like, hey, who who the hell am I, right? And I'm trying to figure that out, and I'm trying to follow this vision that was pumped in my head. And then I think it was November, October, November of uh, 2021, and you know, the LDS Church here put on a. Um, a class that they'd never done before, which was you know, about you know, having you know emotional you know wherewithal. I can't remember exactly how they how they put it, but it helping helping people become more emotionally resilient. And you know they were there and they they had a book and you know they had an administrator and the administrator goes through the book and would not deviate from the book at all, which is where I came in. And so you know I'm there and I like I share and real love with these people and I'm really just pulling out their personal testimonials. I got them all. Every single one, there was a group of like 10 people, every single one of them, I got them to admit that they hate it. They hate it when somebody goes up there and says exactly that. I know, brothers and sisters, I know that Book of Mormon is a wonder because they're like, dude, you're full of shit. And, um, and you know, because that's no different than, again, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, you're wrong. You should do this. You should, you should be me. You should be me. You should be me. Well, you're not happy. The second you sat down, you got a scowl on your face. You're not happy. Why, why should I be you? And so I got them to actually admit, you know, their humanity outside of their dogma. And so I kind of started flipping, you know, a little bit. Yeah, I, I didn't do so well because I, I didn't uh, keep keep going and we didn't have that intimate. Uh, well, I went through the entire time. It was like six weeks or eight weeks. And so I didn't have a whole lot of time with them. But I started flipping dogma around a little bit. And I don't know if you know, but dogma backwards is am God. Hmm. Wow. Wow. That's really cool. And, you know, it's, it's interesting too. And, it, and I think it ties back to what we we're talking about, even, you know, with the, the military in Iraq, right? And it's like, 
you can see through those hollow words when when people, you know, like like George Bush is saying, you know, we're we're Christians, we're coming into Iraq as as part of a you know almost like a holy war, another crusade. Yet, you know, we're launching drones and and mowing down civilians left and right. Like your your actions are not matching up with the the spiritual foundational principles that you're 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 hoping to articulate. Again, we're programmable by design. And if if the people who are at at the top of the top, right, World Economic Forum, I bet I bet maybe one percent of that population knows who Klaus Schwab is, right? Uh, I bet most people have no idea who he is. Well, under Klaus Schwab are going to be world governments. Under world governments are going to be our local municipalities. But people look at you know people like you know AOC or Bernie Sanders like oh those some that's somebody with real power. Uh, uh-uh, not at all. You know, the, 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 you know, whoever's in the shadows behind them, right? That's, that's who has the real power. And they're the ones who have the real core beliefs. And you can kind of look at it as during the Manhattan Project. You know, there were about 144,000 people working on the Manhattan Project, and none of them knew they were working on the Manhattan Project. Why? Their base wasn't big enough, right? They just couldn't see. And, you know, maybe an analogy, you know, kind of to go along with, you know, what you were talking about. Uh, is, you know, imagine, imagine a slug <clears throat> and a slug's living its life. It's crawling around, leaving little slimy trails, munching on lettuce. And then an ant walks by and his aunt looks at this slug like a slug. Look at you just leaving slimy trails, just munching on lettuce. You know, an ant, that's where it's at. You know what? <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I live in a colony, you know, I, I've got an exact job to do, you know, I'm part of a community, an ant, man, you know, I only choose being an ant. Well, then, you know, the ant, you know, walks over this, this big thing that comes to be the toe of a hen. This hen looks at this ant, it's like, an ant. Look at him, just following, you know, chemical, you know, uh, chemicals and uh, pheromones telling him what to do, you know, following a queen that he's never even met, you know, just obeying orders like a hen. You know, I have, I have food that just rains from the sky. I can just walk around and peck wherever I want, like a hen, you know, that, that's where it's at. And because the base isn't big enough and you get further up, then the base gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then at the very top, you realize that, oh, well, you know, there's actually somebody pulling the strings and they are the ones with the biggest base. And, you know, unfortunately to say, I think that whoever's got the biggest base is likely some sort of cabal like Hydra structure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's the the fundamental truth that, you know, is is coming out. Right. And uh, yeah. So but um what what gives me great hope, right, is, you know, that Hydra structure, it, it's always been there, right? at least for seemingly thousands of years right i think what's different is that we're finally to the point where we're knock on wood breaking free of it right we've we've got the technology to communicate to to let the truth rise to the top and to recognize that you know we have the power right these these you know goons like klaus schaub and george soros they only have the power that we give to them right and so when we say fuck you we're done with this we're ready for something better we're ready to be responsible stewards of this beautiful planet that we've been given with we're ready to be members of our galactic community in a in a positive manner right then you know the the limits are infinite yeah 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 absolutely yeah i, I really like that a, a lot and you know so you know, be, like you're saying there's so many people that are waking up and so because of the stage that we're at right they can't just go out and start murdering people like they may have you know say you know two three hundred years ago and so the only thing they can do is like there's a clear signal that's waking people up so what they do is they just have a cascade of noise to try to cover up the signal and and that's effectively what they're doing yeah yeah and that's uh and i can't remember where i heard this recently but it was like um 
you know, once like as truth, as truth gets louder, it gets stronger. Right. And as fear and, and force, it, it gets smaller. Right. And so the more we shine a light on these folks behind the curtains, right. The more they retrench and the more they say, you know, crazy things like you have no right not to get vaccinated. And, you know, we're going to censor you for misinformation. And, you know, we're, uh, we're sending billions and billions to Ukraine because Putin bad. Meanwhile, the homeless population in America continues to grow. You know what I mean? Like that, just the, the clear dichotomy and just, uh, you know, frankly, bullshit, for lack of a better word, just shines through that much clearer. You know, I'm glad you brought that up. But I think the one thing that you forgot to mention that actually is, is a really good reason to go to war with Russia is the fact that Trump's face smells like uh, a Russian you know, hooker pee. Right? <laughs> and so, so I think, I think that's a legitimate reason to go against a superpower is like, bro, this guy's getting his face pissed on by a Russian hooker. Like, Whoa, we can't be having any of that. And you're right. And that's, that's what's so brilliant about it is that you see people coming off and just like screech, like a screeching harpy, you know, look, look at him. And you know, what's so crazy is that, you know, uh, you know, if we go back to you know politics a little bit, it's, it's, it's insane for me now to step back and be like, Oh, you know, as much as I, you know, fell into the paradigm of orange man bad, what's even more fascinating is the fact that, uh, you know, Hillary was so unpalatable and was so gross that a carnival barker, you know, won over her in, in a historic event. And, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's insane. Yeah, I, I hear you, man. And, you know, I, uh, I'm ashamed that I was, I was uh, you know, fooled by thinking that she was, you know, not a horrible person, frankly. And, and, you know, and just gets back to just how deep the rot is within the system of like, those were our options. Right. But, uh, but again, you know, it's all part of the awakening process and all part of uh, that elevation of consciousness to just recognize, you know, what's, what's always been there beneath the surface and that shadow side. And now, you know, it doesn't mean that we have to hate it or despise it, or, you know, we need to come back with fire and brimstone, but it's, you know, we need to expose it. We need to let the truth shine through. We need to stop, all of the suffering that's been caused by these maniacs in power and transcend it to something much better and, and much more beautiful. I love that. And in fact, I think the first thing we can do is to examine the places in our lives where we might say, Hey, I feel ashamed mm -hmm. because you know, does a, does a sapling feel ashamed that it's not big enough to, to reach, you know, the, the sky, you know, uh, it, it, you know, like the trees around it. No, it's, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a walnut, you know, um, or rather an acorn, uh, does an acorn judge itself for not being a full oak? Well, no, because we're all at our level of awareness, right? We, mm -hmm. Our base is only so big. So, you know, if we do find a place to, where we feel shame, right, shame is only going to hurt us. It's only going to hold us back. It's only going to create blocks. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it's good or bad. It just means it's going to create blocks and going to invite entropy. It's going to, as it creates blocks and it stagnates, it's going to invite those parasites. And so if we do find shame, well, you know, we can examine those and be like, oh, well, this does not serve me. You know, I should release any energy that does not serve me. And so that way I can grow into the magnificent tree, you know, a magnificent being that I'm meant to be. And because the idea, you know, there's, there's been no truer statement, which you really brought up, uh, you know, with Rumi, that you change yourself and you change the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so do you have any good like daily practices that you use to uh, release energy that's not serving you? Oh, yeah. Uh, so every morning I wake up at uh, 4.45 uh, a.m. Uh, I, you know, come downstairs, I drink, um, you know, my big old, you know, liter bottle of water. But more than that, so this is a flaska, F-L-A-S-K-A. 
And it's, you know, created to, you know, higher vibrations. It's also got love and gratitude written on it. Uh, there's, you know, studies that have been shown that if you send love to water, will actually create more harmonic, you know, geometric shapes and water responds. Water's got memory. I've also written stuff on the glass as well. Um, and so, uh, you know, I do that. Then I go upstairs and I meditate for a good uh, 40 minutes. And, you know, you, I might use binaural beats, right? I might get myself in a specific, you know, uh, you know, alpha state, or you know, I might use a, a theta state if I want to be a little bit more calm, and you know, or I might just use nothing and just sit in silence. But I meditate every morning, you know, you know without fail. Um, you know, my you know Ed Stracher, you know, my spiritual master has taught me how I can transform right these energy blocks and transform these negative energies into you know love, light, prosperity, and abundance. Um, and then, uh, after that, so five 30 comes around. So my alarm goes off, Hey, meditation's over. Then I hop in my car and I go to the gym. But as I'm driving to the gym, I have an oath of manifestation that I, that I, uh, that I say every, every morning. And, uh, you know, with that, and so, it's, you know, maybe two, three minutes long, if that. And so I just, you know, I've, I've got it on my phone. So I just speak along with it as I'm driving really get myself into that feeling. And then when I go to the gym, I mainly spend my time in the steam room. Uh, and then I, after the steam room, I go to the pool and I work out in the pool and you know, do a little bit of workout in the steam room as well. Um, but the steam room is a great way to get a, a free cardio workout. Uh, I'm a big nerd for Joe Rogan, and I've mm -hmm. probably watched every episode that Rhonda Patrick has been on. And she talks about the deep benefits of, you know, of saunas and, you know, heat and heat shock proteins, mm -hmm. you know, how it makes our, you know, our immune system so much stronger. And so I do meditation in the steam room as well. And cool. so then, you know, now I'm really feeling this morning meditation. And so it's effectively a way of me to set my GPS right in the morning. Right? Because I can rush and scramble and just try to hop in my car to try to get to somewhere where I have an approximate idea of where I'm going. And then I get downtown and downtown is like a, a bustle. And I, holy crap, like, how do I get there? And then I'm driving around. I might actually find that I'm late. But if I spend a couple of minutes first by setting the GPS, setting my coordinates, well, I'm going to get taken right to where I need to go. And if I want a, a, a life of love and abundance, and I don't want to be swayed by things that make me that that are trying to make me afraid or trying to control my mind or trying to control the you know uh, you know how I act in the world, well, then I better make sure that I am the king of my own domain. Wow, that's awesome, Joshua. Man, this has been such a fun conversation. Um, where can folks learn more about you if they want to uh, just, you know, learn more about what you do with the Ching method and see about, you know, booking a, uh, an appointment with you? Yeah, man, I appreciate the question. So yeah, if there's people out there who are struggling, right, I mainly focus in chronic pain. Uh, and that can be PTSD, depression, but also, you know, most muscular skeletal pain. And, you know, and if, you know, if there's one thing I've learned with 10 years in the medical field, that uh, our medical system is wholly incompetent at dealing with chronic conditions. Acute conditions, I break my arm, I get shot, I get stabbed. Wonderful, wonderful. You need to go to the ER, go to the ER, right? Um, but when it comes to chronic conditions, we're wholly incompetent because we just treat it like, oh, you're missing a pill. And so if, you, uh, if you're looking to uh, try something that's actually, that can actually affect the root cause, and actually help again reach that superset so then everything downstream into the subset can heal you can reach me at uh, www.freemefrompains.com and you can book a, a healing plan right there and so that way if nothing else we can build some clarity around what's in your way build a healing plan and hey maybe you feel it's not right to work with me hey that's fine at least you can have some benefit to figure out you know, because there's this idea that hurt people 
hurt people. Well, if hurt people hurt, hurt people and I reduce the amount of hurt and I actually take somebody who from hurting to healed, well, what are healed people going to do? Awesome. Well, Joshua, thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you for helping to heal people and uh, bringing a lot of um, conscious awareness to a higher level. We really appreciate everything you're doing. Yeah, man. I, I, you know, really appreciate the opportunity. I love how, um, how much our lives have overlapped and how similar we are, right? It, it's fun. You know, and it's fun to be a part of this awakening and to help, you know, herald others because ultimately, you know, what, what a better life it would be to have more people feeling joy and abundance, uh, and to feel like we can actually affect the world in a positive way and what better and more empowering way to realize like, oh, if everything's consciousness, well, what if I focus there first? And then I I overlay that consciousness, that healed consciousness onto the substrate. Yep. Yep. And it gets back to what you were talking about, you know, with that acorn growing into an oak, right? If, if, if we lose sight of that seed, that source, that is the foundation of everything in the universe, including us as an individual human, then, you know, we're always, we're always wandering in darkness and in darkness, you can only find more darkness. Yeah. I like that. Well, and then, you know, with darkness, right? Uh, darkness is just the absence of light. So when you show up with light, you don't force it. The darkness just recedes from the light. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, hey, this has been a blast. We'll definitely have to do it again sometime and, you know, keep doing what you're doing, bringing light to the Oh, thanks, man. Hey, you too. You're doing God's work and I really appreciate the opportunity and uh, may love and truth always guide your path. Fantastic, man. Well, have a great evening. Oh, thanks, man. Cheers. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. In this conversation, Joshua and I discuss the archetypes of the mature masculine. Joshua visited Denver last weekend, and he shared with me the book King, Warrior, Magician, Lover by Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette. The authors highlight the four archetypal masculine energies identified by pioneer of depth psychology Carl Jung. King, Warrior, Magician, and Lover the characters we keep encountering on this hero's journey. Writing in 1990, Moore and Gillette had already recognized a disastrous mistake made by American society. Attacking men and masculine energy as inherently toxic, rather than helping men to self-actualize the divinity of the mature masculine. They further make the case that we have never been living in a patriarchy, as the gender activists claim. Rather, our society has been structured as puerarchy, where immature boy energy dominates. Rather than helping men mature into their greatest ideas of goodness, women instead have been forced to take on roles they don't want and to which they are less naturally inclined, while also not receiving the tools necessary to mature into their greatest idea of femininity. The authors highlight the world is overpopulated not just by immature men, but also tyrannical and abusive little girls pretending to be women. In the resulting pandemonium of immature boy and girl psychology, we have perverted the essence of the divine feminine and the divine masculine. Moore and Gillette recognized the enemy for both sexes is not the other sex, but infantile grandiosity and the splitting of self that results from it. This battle of the sexes only serves to destroy the nuclear family, to turn men and women against one another, and to strengthen the power of the establishment. Gender roles in a mixed-up world. 
This age of Aquarius has kicked off with traditional gender roles and gender itself being challenged in confusing, fast-moving ways. Unfortunately, this has not always been for the better. Modern society has seen a gradual simplification, as if coordinated and pre-planned, of the American man, where our drinking water is toxified by atrazine, and men are conditioned to fear getting their girlfriends the wrong flavored latte. Meanwhile, the spineless puppet in the Oval Office has allowed over 6.3 million immigrants over the border illegally since his inauguration, many of them military-age men. That's not to say the vast majority of these immigrants didn't come here in search of a better life for themselves and their families, and that they will be productive members of a brighter American future. But we'd be naive to think that powerful elements of organized crime haven't also been taking advantage of this porous border or that tens to hundreds of thousands of unaccompanied minors have been smuggled into the country. Many of these children are destined for the pits of hell, the dark networks of human trafficking. In 2023, we live in a society that is afraid to ask tough questions and to slow down for introspection, where we have been socially engineered to accept that chemically castrating and mutilating the genitalia of confused, depressed children somehow protects them. That's not to throw shade on those children considering transitioning gender. Quite the contrary. My point to those children is twofold, one of caution and one of consideration. The point of caution. There are predatory individuals and organizations that have been involved in the transgender movement from day one. This includes John Money, Alfred Kinsey, and the Tavistock Institute. This is a brand new cultural phenomenon growing incredibly fast and demonstrating all of the signs of social contagion. Be careful and do your due diligence. The point of consideration. Before you make any life-changing alterations to your body, first go inward. Consider developing a meditation practice for six months before making any major decisions. Perhaps there are simpler ways to find answers to the questions you've been asking. Investigative journalist Matt Walsh recently pushed Americans to ask themselves, what is a woman? To consider that perhaps bad actors have weaponized human compassion and committed the greatest crime of toxic purarchy, the appropriation of womanhood itself. That perhaps we have started a process that is systematically eliminating safe spaces for girls and women and destroying the dreams of female athletes. On Substack, I've included a post from Dr. Anastasia Lupus showing an explosion in the number of pediatric gender clinics between 2007 and 2022, growth of 15,000%. Terms like pediatric gender clinic and gender-affirming care are evil masquerading as goodness, a trick as old as time. As Voltaire realized long ago, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. What is a man? Just as important as asking what is a woman, it's time we ask, what is a man? As I consider the Jungian archetypes of king, warrior, magician, lover, here are some ideas of what the greatest version of masculinity looks like to me. The king. King energy is father energy. King energy is primal in all men. The king is master of his domain. He is wise, selfless, and complex. The king is the calm in the storm, the structure in the chaos, the opportunity in the crisis. The king is strategic. The king is prepared. 
The king is patient, and the king sees around corners. The king is not a tyrant nor an impotent weakling. He is not envious because he is secure in his own self-worth. The king does not subjugate or dominate his subjects. He inspires the creative potential of his community. The king recognizes the Tao, the natural law structuring and ordering all of existence. The king in his fullness possesses the qualities of order, of rational patterning, of integration, and of integrity. The king reminds us to experience astonishment, that we are here on earth for a higher purpose, and that the creative intelligence of a harmonious human population is infinite. The warrior. The warrior is strong. He is strong physically, strong emotionally, strong mentally, and strong spiritually. The warrior is disciplined. The warrior is determined. The warrior is tenacious. The warrior is organized, and the warrior perseveres. The warrior is situationally aware, physically fit, and ready for combat. He has learned compassion from the lover, but he is not afraid to stand up to predators. He is self-confident, self-controlled, and humble. The warrior understands clarity of thought and practices discernment. He is prepared to handle violence if it erupts, but he does not instigate it. And he recognizes that nonviolent non-cooperation and speaking truth almost always works more effectively. The warrior is alert, adaptable, open-minded, and steadfastly principled. The strong warrior is incredibly dangerous, voluntarily constrained. The weak warrior is just incredibly dangerous. The warrior would rather stand alone with his principles than together with a crowd of maniacs. The magician. The magician recognizes that faith is belief in the reality of things unseen. That there is much more to this life and to this reality than meets the eye. The magician sees that universal wisdom is the path to conscious evolution, and he has learned how to experience God directly. The magician has worn many costumes throughout the ages. The magician appears as the physician, the quantum physicist, the innovator of free energy, the holy man, the mystic, and the shaman. The magician understands that there are charlatans, snake oil salesmen, and greedy men behind the curtain. The magician is the man's bullshit detector, and he calls out evil when he sees it. The magician does not become a manipulator himself, nor someone who sabotages the courageous output of men braver than he. The magician is the knower and master of technology, both theoretical and applied. He remembers the initiatory ritual processes of the mystery schools, and he alerts society to their relevance today. The magician explores spiritual alchemy and recognizes the divinity of source consciousness uniting us all. The lover. As the king, warrior, and magician integrate the man with his inner ideals, the lover connects him to external reality, to the sensuality of experience, to the energy flowing through our ineffable cosmos. The lover recognizes not the bondage of being human, but the blessing of it. The lover approaches his mate not as a parasite approaches its host, nor as a coward approaches a bully, not to dominate her or to supplicate to her. Rather, he recognizes he and she are individually and interdependently spirits of love and freedom, responsible for catalyzing one another's latent human potential. The lover pursues not the depraved ecstasy of wanton hedonism, but the bliss of being and the depth of spiritual fulfillment. The lover loves his partner, his family, 
his friends, his community, his country, his planet, and his universe. The lover is alive and passionate, energized and romantic. The lover makes the times as much as the times make the lover. He is prepared for anything thrown his way at this place, at this time, on this planet Earth. Because he's also got the king, the warrior, and the magician by his side. It's time our society changed the narrative on gender and sex. We need to stop fearing toxic masculinity and instead to develop masculine excellence. What are the best aspects of being a man and how can we as individual boys and men actualize those greatest ideas of goodness? It feels like America today is ready to find out. Because the forces of empire fear nothing more than a strong, free-thinking man who believes in God.